Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles and I'm the host of the Sendcast. I am also the Managing Director of B Squared. If you are a new listener, then welcome to the Sendcast. The aim of this podcast is simple. We want to reach lots of people and help you all learn more about special educational needs and disability. And I learn as I go. The main focus of this podcast is to increase the knowledge of teachers in schools, but the podcast supports all professionals working with children or young people with SEND, and it also benefits parents and carers of all children. In this episode, we'll be discussing medication for supporting children with ADHD with one of my regular guests, Fintan O'Regan. Those who do not know Fintan, he has been a head teacher, lecturer at Leicester University, and now works as a trainer and consultant for schools and school support systems. The Sendcast is created and produced by us here at B-Squared. We are the assessment people. We help show the small sets of progress pupils with SEND make. We help schools show progress for a wide range of abilities and ages. And if you're a primary school struggling to show progress or struggling to identify where people isn't making progress, we can help. Did you know you can use B-Squared's assessment software for more than just pupils with SEND? You can now assess all pupils in one system, saving you time and money and simplifying the whole assessment process. Visit the B-Squared website or click on the meeting link in the show notes to book a meeting with me to take you through our assessment software. Let's get on with the podcast. In this week's show, we're discussing medication for supporting children with ADHD. Is it chemical kosh or is it a reset button? My guest this week is Fintan O'Regan. Fintan is a regular on the podcast, but he is also a trainer consultant for schools and school support systems, including social services, health, the police and foster carers. And before this, he has worked with a number of organisations, including Nason, Institute of Education, Leicester University, the UK ADHD Network and the European ADHD Alliance. And before all of this, in his very seemingly long life, he was a head teacher of a specialist school with students ADHD, ASD, and ODD. Welcome to the show, Finton. Thank you, Dale, and thank you for mentioning my very long life. And it's not that. It's sometimes when you know someone and you just listen to their life, you go, how have you fitted us all in? Oh, it's very kind of you to say so. But I think the SEN world, I think sometimes, especially particularly when I first became involved in it back in the late 80s, which is part of my long life, I think it was there were certain areas particularly that, that were very new and fresh, particularly in the UK. And I think having had the experience I had at this international special school, I came across some terms which were fairly established in other countries, but were not established in the UK. So I think that's possibly the, the that, that was the reason why my history seems to have accelerated it. <laughs> so ADHD is a neurodevelopmental difference with a key trait of hyperactivity, impulsivity, and inattention. Medication can be prescribed to support these traits for both adults and children. But in the UK, historically, medication is often used as the last resort. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah, it's a really, really interesting question. And to, to kick off the, the area, I mean, I think there's no doubt that in the UK, we are far more, we have been far more conservative with regards to this issue than possibly other countries, including the USA, where, you know, a lot of this information was generally speaking, and the, the techniques and strategies were for ADHD support were, were, were tending to be more historically, you know, I wouldn't say advanced, but they were certainly prior to what we were doing over here. 
So I think in the US, they, they saw this issue very much as a neurobiological difference. So for them, and it's partly, I think, to do with the cultural way in which they approach things as well, they put medication much more initially into the treatment package and then put all the management systems alongside that with the idea that the medication would help them work more efficiently. I think we in the UK have been um, more likely to start with um, non-medicational interventions initially with diet and, and looking at sleep and, and looking at some, some of the other factors that, that might um, cause some of the symptoms and then put in some of the options for, for management both in the home and in school. I think it's changing a bit now in the UK. And I think it's obviously got to be done on a case-to-case situation and on every individual's needs and, and support mechanisms. And I think whereas, you know, I, I think it, it's, always a, it's always a personalised decision by the, the child and obviously in, in concert with the family. But I don't think everyone should be putting, in my view, I don't think anyone should be putting pressure on families because this is sometimes what I do hear about now for their children to be on medication. I think it should be every child's and every family's individual rights, how they proceed with this matter. Yeah. I, 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 I remember historically in America, ADHD, here's some pills, go off you go, job done. UK, we're supporting therapy, trying to overcome and support and strategies to all that sort of stuff without resorting to medication. And then a number of years ago, I watched a documentary which was on BBC, which was America's Medicated Kids. It's Louis Theroux, yeah. if you search yeah. for that on... Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I thought, I'm going to watch this because I want to find out. And it was a really interesting thing. It did sort of show that children going in and being told medication, but they then talked to some of these children who had been medicated and how it felt. And one of the children in the documentary volunteered to not take her medication. And she went, yeah, I won't do it for 24 hours and you'll see how I change. And I watched it wait a while ago, so I can't quite remember. But basically what happened is after a number of hours, she basically went, I can't do this. I don't like the person I'm becoming. And that I found really interesting. She preferred being the medicated child. And I don't know Again, without knowing more than the documentary showed, I don't know if that was a case of people liked her better that way. She fitted in more, therefore she liked that rather than actually liking who she was. I don't know because there's a whole social side of things of if, I, if I'm regulated, if I'm calmer, if I appear more normal, I would have more friends and be happier in my life. I, I, there's a whole thing around that which I still don't know the answer to. But for me, it wasn't, I, I moved away from thinking they shouldn't be medicated to, okay, there is something here, there is some benefits to this, that for some children in some situations, it might only be for a short period of time, it can help. Yeah, I mean, I think we go back to that really interesting point you just made there about accepting people for who they are and, you know, the, the traits, be they sometimes traditional or non-traditional, you know, neurodivergent versus neuro you know neuro neurotypical if that's a word anymore we're using but we're all neurodiverse i believe so i think if you go back to what you said were the 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 core traits which is the hyperactivity the impulsivity and the inattention some people really enjoy sparky quirky people some people find sparky quirky people to be annoying and so therefore you know i think it is in a dynamic where you're in a group of people who have varying views about how they perceive these traits I suppose the individual who has the traits has to make a decision about what, what's best for them in terms of their environment and, and in terms of a student 
point of view in terms of their learning. And and what I've always been talking about is very important, their socialisation. And if you feel that you, you're going to make less friends by your quirkiness, so to speak, versus make, you know, um, more friends by being somewhat more, have some self-regulation, then I suppose in this particular case, this particular person had had made that choice. You know, if I give you an example of of how I first came across this, I I had a student uh, who's I'm gonna, I'm going to call him Alex, and this was some years ago, back in the late eighties. Alex was a very quirky child. He was very impulsive, but he was fun to be with, and sometimes annoying. You know, and annoyed the other kids. And I used to look forward to having him in us period three. One day he had gone on some medication. It's one of the first examples of a child I'd had experience with going on some medication and he, he just wasn't Alex. He was, you know, he was much less enthusiastic and, you know, he was more controlled and, you know, and I remember thinking, oh, I'm not, not sure about this. So then of course he, I think the parents had then decided it was a trial that they wouldn't put him on medication anymore. And the problem then was that Alex wasn't getting to my class period three because he'd been excluded in period one and period two. So I wasn't seeing Alex at all. So I had to start thinking about what is this all about? Who am I really judging? Am I judging, you know, what I want versus what Alex needs? If that makes sense, really. And that's, that's, that's been, you know, sometimes a struggle for me over the years. But I think in the end of the day, I think if we accept the fact that ADHD is a neurobiological difference, then I think it's only rational to consider the fact that it might need a neurobiological support mechanism to help all the other things that we're trying to do. Because I always say as before to parents, if you couldn't play the guitar before you took medication, you won't be able to play the guitar afterwards, but it might help someone teach you how to play the guitar. So I think if we use a hashtag I see all over the internet, which should be hashtag be true to yourself. Mm. In some ways you could take that as don't take medication because the raw you is the real you. But in reality, you have no choice. It's not a choice to be ADHD. It is something went on your ADHD. And then we, we, we know that mental health is very much linked to communication and socialization. So if you're struggling with that and this medication could help you with your communication, interaction, socialization, and so you have more friends, that's got to be a big boost for your mental health. The fact that you are able to have friends, you can socialize and yeah, so it's a real, what, what is the right thing for the child? Is it, and I think you, I think almost, you almost have to experience both and then listen to the child, which they prefer. Cause I, I, years ago, completely different thing, but I had some medication, which had some very, very strange side effects, not far off hallucinogenic. And I had a couple of these. I went to sleep that night and I woke up when I'm not having these tablets. I did not enjoy this, this. It was, I had really weird dreams and it was like, I was, yeah, it was a very strange feeling. And I just went, no, I'm not doing this. And I think if you, if you are that person with ADHD and you try medication, I think you probably would be aware of the differences you're feeling. Oh, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not feeling this and things like that. Why am I feeling this? Or, and I think maybe at that point, that's when you can make a decision. Yeah. I mean, I think as I understand it, number one, I think parents wrestle with this enormously. You know, no parent that I have never met a parent who says, right, I want to put my child on stimulant medication or non-stimulant medication to support them through school. But the pressures of, you know, of, of to a certain extent, and we know this idea that schools kind of like compliance, you know, they, 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 they need people to sort of do things in a certain way at the same stage. 
at their age. And we know that that doesn't work for everyone who has ADHD. So I think the, the idea of, you know, the, the, the weighing up the pros and cons of, of, of medication is, is real and, and, you know, and it's raw actually for some people. I will say that as I understand it, you know, the, if we look at the mechanism of, of, of how medication seems to work, it does improve. We think this transmission of dopamine and noradrenaline, which are the reasons why we think we, you know, certain people don't have impulse control and does affect their concentration. So, you know, because of that, I think if the, the feedback you're getting is so negative in terms of your loss of potential in learning, and also you are not, you know, engaging in group activities because your friends find you so quirky or so different, then I think it is, you know, it is only a, it's, it's, it's certainly an option to consider to go for a trial and, and to see, you know, what the effects are, if it's positive or if there's side effects that mean that this is not, not an appropriate for you. So I think, you know, if it goes back to this fundamental point about where, if you believe the causes of these traits are to do with neurobiology, if you believe that it's really down to a lack of sleep or computer games or, or diet or parents, then I accept the fact why some people are, are pretty negative on this idea. But if you accept the fact it is a neurobiological difference, then you know, it, it does seem to have some credit in terms of trialing it. I could go on a whole other segue on the whole computer games and things because literally it's like, and you watch some things, you watch them going, oh, people who this are more likely to be this. I'm going, I think you've probably got that the other way around. The reason they're like that into computer games is probably because they're ADHD. But I do think, and it'd be interesting if we had all the numbers around the world, is when do kind of when do children age-wise start taking the medication and is it a lifetime thing or is it a short-term thing that I'd find that really interesting because I think through primary if you're a bit of a difficult child or then all that lot like you kind of you have teachers who support you your teacher gets to know you for an entire year they can work out how to to just maybe tweak their delivery to support you secondary school will be hard work but at the end of that secondary school, you have your GCSEs, which are an important milestone for the rest of your life. And you've really got to weigh up for the rest of their life what's the right thing to do. And that's a really horrible decision to make for someone who's 12, 13, 14 years old and going, you won't really understand, but I think you might have to go on medication to help you get through your GCSE so you have the qualifications so you've got more chances later on in life. Whereas if we don't medicate you, you might not get your GCSEs, you might not get any GCSEs, and then your future prospects are very limited. Throwing that into the mix rather than just right or wrong for you in the moment, but actually his whole life, that's, I think it gets very complicated. I was take the first point you make, and I think you might be interested in this one, Dale. That there is over the last two or three years, there's been a, a new technique. It's called Endeavor, and it's a computer program been licensed by the Federal and Drug Agency in the US for the treatment of children with ADHD. And it's it's there to it's a computerized program, and it's there to help with impulse control and attention to detail. So. There are other techniques out there. There are other other options for children in terms of support. If we go to medication, I suppose it's it's now it's been established now for a number of years, and there are some critics, obviously, for for anything which is 
you know, seen as controversial on, and, and, you know, and this is something which, as I said before, is a big decision for every family to take. But I think you just hinted at the reasons for that is, is to sort of, is to give children to realise their potential, to, to compete with others who, who have the impulse control, who have the attention skills, to give them a chance in order to, you know, to, to have the opportunities, you know, in life, you know, in, in terms of making, making the most of their abilities, both academically and socially. And here's the thing I always say this, if you're, you know, we, we always talk about ADHD as a behaviour issue, but it's really not actually, it's, it's a learning and it's an interaction issue. And if you, if you can meet those two points, your behaviour will differ. It will be different and it will be perceived as different. And so I think, um, you know, you are always weighing up the things. In terms of how long do you take it and what age do you start, it really depends, I think, on the, on the severity of the symptoms and I think to a certain extent the direction into which the parents wish to sort of help their child. It's generally speaking not usually prescribed under seven, although children who have very extreme traits or maybe hyperactivity who are at danger of running out in front of traffic or jumping out of a window, then you know there might be some cause there to, to, to administer it earlier. Do children stay on it for a lifetime? You know, it, the answer to that is going to differ very much from family to family. Most people, I think, will, will you know, use medication in order to meet the objectives of trying to do what all the other people seem to do easily all day, which is sit down for six hours a day and, and learn in that particular way. And, and then once they've decided the areas which they like to do in terms of when they get to 16 or 18, then generally speaking, what we know with ADHD, which makes it a bit anomaly, when they're interested in what they're doing and who they're doing it with, they're very focused. So therefore, that, that, that need for medication to, to just to stay in the game, so to speak, may be reduced. Some people will continue to take it throughout college and adulthood, but in most cases, you know, in my experience, most people, it, it's its optimum time of use will probably be during those, you know, year 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 five to year eleven sort of period of time. I think because I think is is we, me and Finton, and also me and many other guests talk about how secondary school is children just have to conform. Secondary schools are just a treadmill of pushing people through GCSEs to make the school look good to get the qualifications, to make the country look, all those sorts of things. And whether or not that education is right for that child is a question that's not always asked, especially I think with the new GCSEs, where even if there's a qualification more suited, you still you, they want you to sit the GCSEs because they feel that getting a one in GCSEs is more beneficial than a more suitable qualification. Whole other podcast on that one. But yeah, I do think that once that the medication can help you conform through those years where you have to conform, where you have to fit in, you have to do the work in the way the government tells you to produce your work. But I think once you get past that, and is as I think with ADHD, we've talked about it being a superpower and we talk about it, help you see the bigger picture and thinking outside the box. So once you're away from this government prescribed thinking, that's the bit of skills you actually want. You want to go into your job and be able to often think there's a better way, there's a different way, we could do this better. And your passion for that can come out. So I can imagine, yeah, stopping either after secondary or after college. And I'd also wonder what the whole COVID situation is for those people who took the medication maybe to fit in in the office environment who can now work from home 
can they be more themselves? Which do they yeah, prefer? I mean, well, there's so much in there we could we could start off with. So let's let's just talk about you know primary schools. You know we have that one to one relationship. It, it's you know you do get the opportunity maybe to know the child. Therefore, there's some structure and some consistency across. Although that means if the teacher you know clicks with the child, secondary we've got nine, ten different teachers, different subjects, and the variables are so much bigger. So therefore. It does make it more complex for someone who is different, maybe to 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 get everyone to understand them in the same way that one teacher might. So the variables of secondary school are bigger. It's not to say that secondary school isn't working for lots of people. It it does, you know. It, it but I always make the, the analysis that if you like cricket or not out there, but you know most students are are playing test match cricket. They're playing the long game. They can play that long game, you know, in order to meet get their grades, please their parents, please their teachers. Got to, but children with ADHD are are twenty twenties. You know they've got a very different rhythm to how they learn and how they how they react. And so it's still cricket, but it's a different type of cricket. And and secondary schools do do appear to be better suited towards test match cricketers. That's the point. Whereas you know the children with ADHD, they sort of need, they have a different rhythm, and therefore we you could argue that what we're trying to do is give them the 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 the, the tools, if you like, to get through to those five days of test match cricket, which is, is seemingly a long time. I think when, when we get to adulthood, and, you know, we said before, it's the Ken Robinson changing the paradigm. He says schools like compliance, which we've kind of mentioned, whereas business likes innovation and likes difference. And, but I suppose in order to get to that platform, we have the opportunity to show your skills at the level that we, we know all the creativity and problem solving. You need to have a certain certain basis of of educational functioning i suppose really to get to that interview to get to that point and at that point then 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 as you say people will often flourish because there's that there's the hyper focus that comes with 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 the adhd style of learning regarding covid i think it's um, be interesting to know there's a study on that really in terms of how people were you know did did not have to conform if you like to the office you know the the office sort of like of environment way of working and fitting in and and maybe some of the organizational things that come with going to work and getting to work on time and everything else so you you right it's an interesting don't know if anyone's done a study on that but it'd be an interesting one to speculate on you, you see on these meetings people just sitting in one hour long meetings and all this lot and it's like should have been an email should have been and, and yeah that's me i hate meetings for the sake of them it just drives so I can imagine not having to sit in those meetings or be in a Teams meeting and having your work up. So you look like you're looking at the camera, but in reality, you're just getting on with your work and half listening because it is really boring. It has no interest to you, but somebody wanted you to be there for some reason. Yeah, I can imagine that actually being able to work from home was a lot more comfortable for a lot of people. Social side, you, can, you need to put more effort in. And one of the things before COVID, we looked at working from home and there's a company I know who have 100 people and no office. And he was doing a talk of how he manages it, how he does that. And he actually purposefully promotes people socialising outside of work, so finding interests, finding hobbies. Because if you do have that going into work and meeting people, mm. you're getting a search, search. If you're not having that, if you aren't leaving your house, you need to find something else so i just like to add that in because being at home can be great but also dangerous it's a bit of a balance isn't it i think for people now and you know i used to think that you know you used to watch them at you know on the train at you know Clapham junction going into work and everyone's a bit 
robotic. Everyone looked miserable and, you know, and they're having to almost get up at half five, you know, five to get ready to go into work and then to come out again. If it was winter, you didn't have any evenings. And it was kind of everyone was just, you know, sort of working towards the weekend. Whereas I think, you know, the, the fact that we do have this issue where some people can work from home for some days of the week and some people can go in is, is probably the best of both worlds in, in one sense. In teaching, of course, we don't quite get that luxury. So, you know, we do have to go in. And I think, you know, I would say as, a, as if people are listening who are mostly teachers today, we will be people, people, you know, and, and we, you usually like to meet other people. And so I think although we were adaptive and doing things from home, I think generally speaking, we are social, social people, but not everyone is. And I think, you know, going back to that idea that some people during COVID particularly who had maybe ADHD and ASC traits probably did enjoy that there was times that, you know, that they found at home, they were happier, if you like, than they were always being at school, having to to cope with some of the social pressures that we have. And I think if we just mention, make that point, you know, it's not always classroom time that we really do need to be covering. It really is the non-structured time. It's the break times. It's the lunch times that can sometimes be most difficult for children, both with ADHD and of course with ASC. So, you know, we just need to never forget that, that that's the time we really do need to also be supporting. Yeah. So we've talked about the reasons why you might want to go down the medication route. And in reality, that medication is going to I'm assuming, not gone through it, but it's going to bring down that hyperactivity and the impulsiveness. Yeah, as much as we, the, the understanding that we have is that, say, for example, you know, this is a cruise, say you have, you have a synapse, you have a, a mechanism across where electrical impulses go across, it changes into a, a neurochemical across there. What we think is, say, for, it's just not a crude example, but say there's thousands of these vesicles that go across. But say, for example, there was just 100 vesicles that go across. For people that have traditional learners, in a, in a, in a sort of transmission system, what seems to happen is that probably about 70 of them go across on average. The reason why the other 30 don't go across, they get sucked back in to the, to the, to the, to the pre-synaptic nerve where, where, where the mechanism is taking place. So 70 go across, that gives you what would see as age-appropriate impulse control and concentration skills. If, you would, if we were to take medication, it would probably, because what medication does is it doesn't actually, it, it actually blocks the holes where the medication is being sucked back in. So for example, there are holes in all these presynaptic neurons, as we understand it. And what's happening is with children with ADHD, there's more holes. So maybe only if 70 goes across in an average person, maybe only 40 or 50 goes across because these holes are bigger. And what happens is when the medication is coming in, the medication is blocking up some of these holes and allowing maybe not 70 to go across, but about 60 to go across. So it allows someone who, who is age of, you know, at the same age as, as, their, as their colleagues, it gives them an even playing field in which to do the things that other people around them can do seemingly at will. And, and I believe if, if you are neurotypical and you, you, you know, you, 70 is going across, if you took the medication, it would probably bump you up to a, seven, a 75. So it, the irony is it would work for everybody, but it, not, not in, a, in, a, in the same proportional rate as it does for someone who has you know, less, less, less neurotransmissions going across. That's what I've been you know, taught in terms of how this works. But the reality is, and I'm told this as well by uh, doctors, 
we don't know how most medications actually do work. We just we just construct these kinds of theories and thoughts. But, but what we do know is they seem to work. And, and yes, the idea is that it would definitely help improve your impulse control um, and therefore also your concentration. Having said that, the medication isn't the thing that makes the changes. It's the person working with the other person that helps to make the changes. If you gave someone medication who indiscriminately hit, hits people when they're frustrated, if that's all you do, you give them medication, what they'll do afterwards, they'll just choose who they hit. That makes sense. You need to give, you need to give someone around them needs to help them to make a different choice about what they do, if that makes sense, Dale. Yeah. So I was going to say, there is there's the stimulant type medication and then there's the, I want to say de-stimulant? The non-stimulant. Non-stimulant. Yeah. So yeah. the non-stimulant, I presume, helps with the hyperactivity and tension? They all do something similar, the stimulants and non-stimulants. The stimulants are more immediate release mechanisms and they're the ones that would always be used initially. So they take, they usually would work and there's a whole range of them. I mean, there's three, you know, methylphenidates, for example, and that does not include Ritalin, by the way, which hasn't been used for many years, but they're all methylphenidates. And there's another, another stimulant as well called LVANS. What they tend to do is they will help impulse control and concentration and will work within probably 20, 30 minutes of when, you, when, when, when they're administered. They have different efficacies. Some will last for eight hours, some will last for 11 hours, some will last for, um, for 12 hours. The non-stimulants are a little bit more like antidepressants. They take about four to five weeks to actually start to work. But they are generally given as second-line medications if the stimulants don't work. And it could well be that the non-stimulants might be there for more additional issues such as mood and anxiety as well. Okay, cool. So obviously when I, when I watched that documentary about America, they were, that was a stimulant type because she obviously felt the effects wearing off and wanted that tablet. So... So, so is it at most ADHD medication is the stimulant? Yeah. Yeah. The majority are stimulants. And as I said, there's a family, there's three in methylphenidates, which tends to be the most popular one, which Ritalin is, gets the headline. And Ritalin was the sort of, I suppose, the, the hoover of vacuum cleaners, if you like, really. There's a whole series now of Dysons and other ones there as well. And then there's another, there's another one, which is a second line stimulant sometimes given as a first line called LVANCE, which has got actually 13 hours coverage. So those will be the majority. And if those don't work, then as I said, because there are other factors or other reasons, then non-stimulants could well be also then tried. There are other medications to do with aggression and, and maybe, as I said, and, and you know, more, more extreme forms of anxiety as well. But those are generally speaking for comorbid issues such as oppositional defiant disorder or bipolar disorder or, or some other other co-occurring issue. So we're taking the medication. Hopefully it's reduced things. What else might it do? Are there any side effects? Yeah, I mean, with all medications, there's, there's potential side effects. The, the, the main one with the, the, the stimulants is appetite suppression. And actually, I believe there's, a, there's one of these stories about how it was invented initially as an appetite suppressants. In fact, this was a doctor whose wife apparently was a little bit overweight, whose name was Rita. So, so therefore it became Ritalin. Yeah, I know. It does. I'm not sure if it's true. It's one of those stories that's on the circuit, which never quite, never quite, quite true about. So it is definitely an appetite suppressant and that can cause difficulties, particularly when they're young, because obviously, you know, and when they're old for that matter. But so those are the main ones, but with different types of medication, 
ones which are four hours, eight hours, 12 hours, that would have to be, you know, mitigated and supported throughout the child's day and, and the times they eat. The other one is sometimes is it can affect sleep and, and sometimes you get a rebound effect as well of somebody when they're off the medication or coming off medication, so to speak. Never quite sure whether or not it's a rebound effect or it's just sort of like a, it's, a, it's where they were before they were off on medication. So therefore, there is that. There are obviously things to do to support those other areas as well that you can do. So sometimes you do get individuals, if sleep is an issue, having things like melatonin to support that area at nighttime as well. So I think, you know, what what you do need, obviously, is a, you know, you you absolutely do need to have a medical professional who is is trained, who is experienced and who has expertise in in these areas. It's usually going to be um, a child psychiatrist or a pediatrician. Or, of course, as an adult, an adult psychiatrist. So when you talk about appetite suppression, is that they just don't feel hungry or is it when they're eating, they just go, I've had enough and I don't want to eat No, anymore? it is mostly to do with if they don't feel hungry. Again, not a doctor here, so I have to sort of say it would be something that each individual, but generally speaking, it, it does appear just to sort of minimise appetite or minimise it in some ways. That And, but, and there's, that's why some of the measurements of, of trials in particular are important in terms of measuring, you know, things like height and, 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 and weight and things like that based on, and this is where we go to this issue of, of pros and cons, as I said, but, you know, you, you really do need to have a medical professional who is available, you know, in order for you to measure these things over a period of time. There's usually a degree of moderation, you know, and that's where the trial period should should take place where you sort of try to sort of like to certainly minimize the impact of this and find a medication that works for you. It could well be that one will work more efficiently than another one and those side effects will be reduced or, or, or certainly be supported in different ways. I'm going to go right back to something you said at the beginning, which was the difference between us and America, that they go for the medication, we go for the support and things like that. I personally say we go for the delay and ignore and pretend it's not there and then blame them for their behaviour route first, and then move on to the uh, support. But I suppose coming back to right at the beginning is if we had better understanding, better support, more accepting, more reasonable adjustment, then some of those children who are struggling wouldn't necessarily, may not need medication because they are accepted more and if we can find ways to support them in the way they learn in that one day test one day match type cricket then why have the medication but it's i suppose it's because we the schools are not that supportive in lots of cases they are going to come across lots of different teachers inconsistency things like that and that's where the behavior comes and that's where the challenges become and that's where you're going, I need them to get through their GCSEs. That's important. That's why people are going for the medication. Yeah, I mean, I think with, with all issues, we have mild, moderate and severe. And if you only get someone who, when they're five or six, is going to run out of front traffic or jump over a building, they are so hyperactive and so impulsive that they're, 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 it's a risk to their, to their safety with the best will in the world, a sticker chart isn't going to be enough, even though I love sticker charts. But if you've got someone who's more moderate to mild, then obviously there's a lot of other things that we, we can do to to prevent, if you like, the self-esteem, you know, and the fact that the, 
that their 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 failures from you know from from accelerating. So they start thinking, I well, I can't do this. I'm going to be the best that I can do at being the worst that I can be. Because I have seen some students who do that. So I think you know, if we go back to schools and to families, with families initially, I, I get asked a lot of questions about diet, and and I think absolutely start with diet. Start with diet because obviously we know what we put into our body affects our mood, affects our behaviour. There's there's a lot of trials on the diet, and I think we are we were still when America was pushing, we were very much on the diet element of things. In it does have an effect, but it's not the major. Uh, it's not the major cause of the symptoms and therefore it won't be the major, major solution either. Where I feel diet is really important for families because I always start with diet. If you start talking about diet with families, then it radiates out into other areas. So they start thinking about bedtime routines. They start thinking about how much time they do get on, 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 on the tech. So it's not just the diet that really is the big thing. In fact, the diet, if you like, initiates more structures in other parts of the lifestyle. So that's where I think it can work well. And in a school environment, it's similar. You know, if we start talking about structure and start talking about supporting them during non-structured times, with breaks and lunch times, that can radiate then into differences in terms of how teachers might respond to them in classroom scenarios. And you know, you won't. I am going to put a plug in for for the fact that you know we need to change these D's. I keep on saying this. It's not a deficit. It's not a disorder. It's a developmental difference. And once we can get that across, then you will find that the people will react differently to people who are different. Definitely. And if, if we, I go to the autism shows, I do various shows, and I meet lots of people who are diagnosed as ASC, ADHD later in life. So these are obviously people who were snuck under the radar, Yeah. They might have been the quiet ones. They might have been doing good grades, but putting no effort and just arrogant or lazy might have caused things like that. Or just, I don't know, but you have all these children who might get these descriptions and just think they're not great. And then they go through and it's because they are ADHD or they are, autistic, but that, but because they're not being disruptive, it gets ignored. Yeah, I mean, this, this goes back to, I think, you know, boys made all the noise, you know, the girls drifted through. You always see the overt ones, you don't see the covert ones. And of course, you're right, many of them have drifted through. And what's happening is, I mean, the interesting ratio is that, it, that in terms of adults with ADHD, it's a one-to-one ratio, as many women as men. In children, it's about four-to-one boys to girls. Well, what's the reason for that? You know, I think part of the reason is that the girls and boys who have inattentive ADD did drift through, as in ASC, and then have 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 done an amazing job when you think about it, having not been picked up, having not having had the support, and are now realizing later on in life through usually the fact that one of their own children has been diagnosed, and they are now understanding themselves more through maybe the history of time of their own child and are now seeking help and are now seeking support in that. So, you know, and I think the, the journey that I think people, particularly with the inattentive, it must be an extremely lonely one because not only were you, you were, you were basically, you were doing it by yourself with no one really identifying you and, and, and supporting you and, and looking around to other people who were doing these things easily and, and you couldn't do that. Well, you know, that must have been, you know, quite a lonely and, and, and difficult place to be. So I think we do really do need to be much more alert to the covert 
both boys and girls? I, I think there is. We, I think teachers, many years ago, there was a lot more on child development. So you knew what the expectations are. And for various reasons, that's kind of been stripped out of the initial teacher training and the early careers. It's kind of, we're focusing on subjects, we're focusing on this. And actually, child development, special needs, we're ignoring all of that. You'll pick that up somewhere else. But I think if there was a better understanding of various milestones and various expectations, and we almost paid attention to that, that would help us a lot more. Because there's things, I remember when we, when my daughter was at nursery, there were, uh, there were certain things, certain little milestones they looked for. And one of them was if a child didn't crawl, when they fall over, they're less likely to put their hands out. Mm. Uh, so you, you see a child with a smashed up face, and you're like, oh, they fell over. Oh, so they didn't crawl. You're like, how do, how do you, it's about tracking past the midline and things like, after a few things that they said, oh, if they don't do this, and if we understood that more, if there's a wider understanding in education of these things, of certain expectations, a certain way people react, the typical ways mm. of doing things mm. and the expected norms, and then we just literally do a little flag, not because they're disruptive, but just because they're not fitting into the typical bracket, mm. we can then do a bit more research. And there's statistics about ASC and suicide mm. and things like that. And yes, they require, but mm. they're not happy. They're not. There's things going on which they're struggling with, but it's not being picked up. Yeah, I mean, I would have to concur with a lot of what you said there because I do training across the whole age groups. You know, I do early years up to primary and secondary and to adults. And I, I would say that the people who think developmentally most, you know, most, mostly if, naturally, if you like, are those that work in early years. They do think about developmental issues. You know, may, it's because, as you say, the, the sort of environment which they're in and they – look at those lines whereas you think as you do go up you do tend to become more i think subject based versus child based it doesn't mean that i'm i'm, I'm not saying everyone's like that i'm just saying that that does it's seem the way to everyone's pushed yeah it is it's kind of the direction in, in which you go and then i suppose it goes back to that issue then of identification and early identification preventing you know the layers going on and I, I met someone the other day who said to me, you know, I think that this person might have this or that issue, but I don't feel I'm not qualified to really say. And I said to him, well, honestly, you are qualified because if that's what your instincts are telling you, then, then trust your instincts and mention it to someone then who can follow that through. Um, he looked at me as if, you know, I, I, you know, I suppose he just needed the confidence to, to say that what he felt was was something needed to be followed up but honestly trust your instincts if you think someone has got some other you know difference or difficulty don't just don't don't be a bystander be an upstander you know because i think it could make all the difference towards i mean you just hinted at some of those tragic long-term consequences there's a term out there for suicide actually called bullicide and actually it is to do with the fact that children particularly in secondary who are bullied will take their own lives. And you do trace back to the traits that those people had initially, and they will, will usually be, you know, they usually will have an SEN sort of element to it. Yeah. But probably mild, undiagnosed, and I'm not going to say mild autism, but, you know, it's, I would say, non-impacting autism. Yeah. Yeah, that actually yeah. Mm. it didn't hugely impact, but there were obviously bits they struggled with, couldn't, un which was the bit that impacted them here, but, you kind of would be completely unaware if you talk to them. Mm. It's only if you really knew them, 
you would sort of see, hang on, they're not doing this. But the problem is they're easy young children. It's when you're an adult, you've had lots of experiences of people. When you talk to someone and they just walk in that conversation differently, you can go, well, that's not right. Mm, mm. But we're very, children are very accepting of differences, which is great. It really is. And it's going to be really hard for them to know when a difference isn't healthy. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think so. And, and as you say, although I'm still pushing, promoting, cajoling, I don't know, whatever term you want to get, if, if we are doing training in schools and with teachers on neurodivergence and neurodiversity, I think what we really do need to do is, is also to do that with parents, but we absolutely do need to do that with the students too. So the students themselves can actually, A, know themselves a bit more, hopefully, and B, make things less of a stigma make it more acceptable to be different in the way that we've done this in, in other diverse areas. And then I think everyone will benefit, benefit from that. I think just the one thing to say about adults as well, if adults are there, then the journey for an adult can sometimes seem, even though you are a successful adult, there may well be elements of your life that aren't working as well as you would like them to be. And there is a need, therefore, for some adults to maybe do some investigative work about themselves to seek, you know, someone who can maybe validate some of the things that they know are different about them. And then to also avail themselves of the, of the support that's available for that, including medication. And so, you know, medication doesn't have to be given between five and 18. It can be given between 18 and 80. And again, it, it may well support some of those issues of impulse control and concentration, which may be causing difficulties in a, both a work and a social setting. And it's interesting when you, when you go to like the autism show and you meet someone who's walking around, and you go, oh, are you a parent? And he goes, no, I've just been diagnosed. I'm trying to work out what I don't know. <laughs> what have I missed out on? What is it I can't do that I don't know I can't do? And it's just really interesting. And I think it was I think it was Joanna Grace when she talks about being diagnosed in that journey. I think she, she thought she knew what her autism was going to impact on. She thought it was like X wide. Yeah, mm. that's my autism. It's this big. And then she actually found out that it's a lot bigger and it has impacted much more of her life than she realized. And there was a bloke who I see at the autism show and, it, and I can't remember the T-shirt, but it's sort of like, it's talking about being autistic and being cheeky. It's sort of like, yes, I am autistic, but the cheeky is all me. Mm. I'm going, mm. no, no, that's your autism. <laughs> something, the cheekiness is something your autism has impacted you, which reduces that bit of not saying something, which allows you to be cheeky. Yeah, you've adapted, haven't you? You've adapted over the years. But it's recognised as being cheeky. Yeah. So when you have someone who's, so it's certain things, again, when you just, various traits we've had in the past, and I've mentioned like when you watch a police drama, it's always a, a lone detective on his third marriage. It doesn't work, but he can see things no one else can. You're going, I know this isn't written as being autistic, but that is a very autistic person. You look at all the cop dramas and you could probably go back in history of various tacticians and things like that. Yeah. And you, if we could dig them up and go stick a needle in them and go, oh, yes, definitely. Yeah, I mean, we know that our most brilliant people are, are a little different to, to be brilliant in what they do and I think at the same time you know they've on the way up I suppose have had some struggles as you said you know you talk about the detective whose obsession you know with the with with the work versus you know sort of interaction with the family can 
not everyone will get the obsession, so to speak, but other people benefit from it. Yeah, I mean, this is what we're, what we're doing, you know, I think in this series, which we're identifying these issues. And I keep going back to my point about that they're not deficits, they're, they're differences. And, you know, and also the, the messages that we have, you know, is it defined? Is it defensive? You know, we need to think of these things in different ways. I, you know, going back to the medication issue, I know that some, it can be, it can really be quite polarizing this, this topic. And I think, you know, when I'm working with families and they say, well, should we, I say, well, I'm not the person to make the decision is yours. And go back to the America. I see, I don't, I see it, I see it as being something maybe on, to put it on the table, maybe not in the middle of the table where, where it might be in other countries. And it's not just the U S by the way, other countries, Australia and you know, the other countries are tending to be more, they've been, they, they were more, what's the word? They were more pioneering, if you like, in the ADHD element than, because the, you know, the theory behind this is, Dale, is that back in the sort of 18th, 19th century, all of the really risk-taking and thrill-seeking people all went off to new lands and left all the really organised people back here in the UK. Of course, that's not quite the case, but there's been a case where all those sort of, so that's why they had more of it over there than here. It's not the case, obviously. But I think back to where medication is, I would leave it on the table, you know, Maybe not right in the middle of the table, maybe on the edge of the table or something to consider as an option. I wouldn't rule it out because if some of the other things are, are not working and the child's at risk of exclusion from school, and you know how I feel about that, and at risk of falling through the cracks in, you know, in our system and not realising their potential and therefore having all those difficulties associated with being unsuccessful in life, then, you know, then, then something that might help reset them which is what we said this could be is something i think we should we should consider not everyone's going to agree with that but that's my view on this yeah that successful in life is quite an interesting whole segue you can go into but i think in reality you want your child to go to be an adult with qualifications and be able to get a job that's what you really want it's the way the world is so Anything else beyond that, you want them to be able to have a job, earn money, so they can do what they want. And that is, there's got to be one of those things where that's got to be in your mind is what is the future for my childhood or my child? Where, where are they likely to be? And you want your child to have the freedoms. You want them to be able to make their own choices. And, yeah, if you can see that it's quite obvious that they're ADHD, and the school doesn't mix, then that may be. Yeah, I mean, one of the questions I used to get a lot more of than less so now, because I think medication has now been here for a while in terms of, you know, being available or to, to consider versus when I first, back in the 80s and 90s, it was still a very new thing here, particularly for children in the, in the UK. One of the questions I used to get a lot is, what, what are the long-term effects? Well, you know, the, the answer to that is that you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure anyone is sure, but this is being, you know, being now administered now for like 30, 40 years. So particularly in other countries like the US, and I think had there been an issue with any long-term effects, I think this would have hit, this would have been quite apparent. This would have hit the media who can sometimes be very um, not, not balanced on this issue, if, yes. if, in my opinion. But I can tell you in some of my experiences what the long-term effects for individuals who who didn't take medication can be and they're not positive that's the that's what i'm going to say so whether or not it's a good reason doing it or not you know some of the some of the opportunities that people that, that may have had but that didn't go that route have not turned out particularly well so 
So in terms of their long-term prospects, it, it hasn't been a particularly good, good, maybe good, good outcome. Yeah, and I think if you think about that, as you've got a big table in front of you, you've got the diet, you've got the home life, you've got support, you've got doing this, and sitting in the corner is that medication. If you've gone through everything else and you're looking at that medication, mm. if you've gone through everything else, it's kind of, you should be doing it. If you get into that point, it's just that if, if that, ne- that life is going to go very negative in a negative way, future prospects, and it is there as an option, mm. you really should consider it. Yeah, and some people will, will have, have a different view on that. and They'll say, you know, if we're going to get to that point anyway, why would we wait and go through all yeah. of that pain of all that? Why wouldn't we put it in earlier and, and let the other things flourish more? But I go back to this point again, it's not the medication that changes the individual. It's the people around them to help that individual make different decisions. And that person will have more impulse control and greater concentration to avail themselves of what they're being asked and asked to do or, or to, to provide. I suppose my last question will be, if you've got this giant table and you go through everything and that, that medication at the end, but that takes you three years to get to that medication, that's three years of negative impact on that child. That's three years of things going wrong, losing friendships, performing badly at school. For you to then start the medication it's not going to fix the last three years, is it? No, very much not. And I think that's one of the issues where you have to weigh up, you know, the pros and cons of when you try or, or, where, or how, at what stage you do. Because I can say as a head teacher of a specialist school, a lot of the time the students came to me back in the early 90s, they were like the 13, 14 year olds. And by then they had all the layers. They yeah. had all the opposition all defined. It was a layer opposition and they had to strip that off off before you get to the person behind. So there was, there was quite a lot, of, a lot of work to do to take away all that negativity and stuff. So that is an argument for, for prevention of those layers taking place. But people will have, obviously, different views on that. But you're absolutely right. It's not going to drop off day one. No. You know, I said before, it's, you know, you, but it, what it will do is we will hopefully give, that, give you a, a chance to help that child understand there's a different direction that they can go in now versus the one that they've been now moving towards maybe over that period of time. And they could by literally, it's just so many implications that if you literally, you completely missed out on all the socialising, everyone else has learned to socialise, you haven't, you're not, it's not going to be easy to get that back. As I said before, you know, many, most kids want to learn. They want to get on with people, but sometimes people think if they've had lots of negative outcomes, they start saying, well, I'm going to be the best at, I'm going to be the best I can be at being the worst I can be. That's the best I can be. And we've got to stop that issue. They've got to be the best they can be in, you know, in, in, the, in a more productive way. Thank you for coming on the show today, Finton. Love the conversation. Finton's given me some links, which I'll be putting in the show notes. And you'll also find Finton's contact details. And you'll find the show notes on our website or wherever you've listened to the podcast. So thank you for listening to the show. If you haven't subscribed already, please click on that subscribe button. You can follow us on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just search for The Sendcast. Now, if you are a school struggling to show progress, if your assessment process is overcomplicated, takes too long, or you just want to see what is available, have a look at the B-Squared website and book a free online meeting with me so I can take you through our products. We have a range of assessment products to help all schools show small sets of progress for pupils with SEND. So if you're a school in England still confused by the engagement model, not sure about the pre-key stage standards or anything else around assessment, get in contact. 
or if you're a school in Scotland or in Wales, we also have content for you. You can find out more about our online training conferences, read our blog, or watch our webinars. It is all on the B Squared website, and you'll find a link to the website and to book a meeting with me in the show notes. And you can also drop me an email. My email address is dale at bsquared.co.uk. So thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Sendcast. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Bye. Goodbye. Goodbye.